Hi guys, and welcome back for another episode of Radcast. This month, we're going to be covering a, a topic that, if we're being honest with ourselves, most of us don't really give much consideration to in radiology, and that's academia and research. Yes, I certainly wouldn't say we're experts in this area, but I'm glad to say we're joined by someone far more qualified than either of us to talk about it, in the form of Dr. Matt Elamir. So, hi Matt. Hi guys, hi. Um, so, Matt is an academic clinical fellow in radiology in Newcastle, he also did academic foundation training as well, so he's truly committed to the academic path and he can tell us all about his experiences. And hopefully inspire us all to do more research. Well, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, thanks a lot for uh, inviting me on. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, so uh, just, you know, as, as you guys have said, my name's Matt. I, I'm, at the minute, I'm a Diagnostic Neuroradiology Fellow in Newcastle, so I've just started my ST4 year. Uh, I've actually just finished my three-year academic clinical fellowship. Um, I have continued my academic status as an honorary clinical researcher. There are various ways in which you can maintain kind of university status as a clinical researcher, and this was the easiest route for me while I'm biding time before I can get onto a PhD fellowship. But we can talk about that in due course. Right, so I'm learning things already. So you don't, the academic clinical fellowship isn't for the duration of your training, it's just a short period. Yeah, that's right. So it's anything between one and three years. So standard academic clinical fellowship starts ST1 and run through to the end of ST3. Okay, um, great. So can you tell us a bit about your background, where your love of research started and yeah, absolutely. So I, I had a bit of a rocky course. It, you know, by no means was I one of these people who in first year med school ended up with loads of publications and always knew that I wanted to go into clinical academia. Um, to be honest, I, I struggled quite a bit in my first and second year. And I think there's a preconception that if you want to go into research, you, you have to have always been, you know, top decile. Mm. Um, that certainly wasn't the case for me. Um, and I, I think one thing I've learned over the course of the last few years is that it what matters much more is kind of your interest in and commitment to doing research mm. rather than your uh, academic background. Um, I, I intercalated a BSc in my third year at med school. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't have made that decision if it was left up to me. Um, I, I went to UCL and it's compulsory for us to actually intercalate BSCs in our third year. Mm. So I found myself in the position of kind of having to do it rather than, you know, have, have actually sought out that opportunity. Um, but as it turns out, that was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me was uh, was doing that BSc, which I did, as you said, in medical physics and bioengineering. That, that does seem somewhat related to radiology then. So are you one of one of the rare breed that knew that they wanted to pursue a radiology career whilst you were still in med school? Yeah, so it, it was kind of the other way around. I mean, I, I really enjoyed physics and maths at school. I did you know, A-level physics and A-level maths. Um, and medicine was kind of a last minute decision almost that I'd been teeing myself up to go into electrical engineering. Uh, and then I, I did some work experience and no offense to electrical engineers, but it was incredibly dry. Um, <laughs> I don't think we have any electrical engineers. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if there are, I'm, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> but um, so I, I did some uh, last minute work experience in medicine and I thought this is definitely the way to go. Um, so... The decision to do medical physics and bioengineering wasn't because I particularly wanted to do radiology. I didn't really know much about radiology at all as a second year med student, but it was more just because I wanted to do a little bit of physics and something a bit mathsy, just because that was stuff that I'd enjoyed at school. Mm. 
Um, and then throughout the course of the BSc, that's when I fell in love with medical physics and especially the medical imaging side of things. And right, yeah. I did a dissertation project, which was investigating a novel kind of x-ray technique. And I just, that was the moment for me where I thought, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to be an academic radiologist. Um, and then, um, so after uni, you went on to do academic foundation training. So what was that like? It was brilliant. The, the AFP is a fantastic program, and I would absolutely encourage anybody who's at, in medical school at the stage of applying to foundation to at least consider uh, the AFP. Uh, it can be a little bit variable depending on where you go. The nature of the program changes from deanery to deanery. One of the things that brought me to the northeast where I am now was the flexibility of their AFPs. So a lot of AFPs down south have a predetermined project and you basically right. apply for a specific project. Um, very few of them, to be honest, would be anything to do with radiology. And so I came up to Newcastle thinking that, you know, if I, if I came up here with some flexibility, I'd be able to forge my own path that would hopefully lead on to uh, academic radiology down the line. Right, so you're not from Newcastle originally? No, no, I'm actually, I'm a Welsh Iraqi. Um, and I, oh, okay. I, I went to London for med school and I didn't really enjoy the big city. It was great for a few okay. years, but six years was, was a bit too much. So yeah. I, I, was, I was quite happy to get out, to be honest, of the South. And now you're <laughs> adopted too. Yeah, exactly. I'm a, I'm a Geordie. Why I? And you, you enjoyed it there. You're going to stay there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for for a whole host of reasons. Um, you know, the support for both in academic training and clinical training has really been fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I had a great experience in my foundation program and in my radiology training to date. Um, not to mention, you know, the quality of life is just quite nice up here. As as mm. you get a little bit older, you realise things like being able to actually afford a house start to matter a little bit more yeah yeah no um but it's a bit cold isn't it that's the only thing yeah it is, yeah, it is. well it's a good thing you guys can't see me because i'm actually wearing my dressing gown so. <laughs> <laughs> did um did just did you get many publications out of your afp okay yeah so i actually i i had no publications when i finished my afp so at the end of f2 I hadn't actually published a full paper yet. Um, I did have some abstracts which got accepted to conferences, uh, which which is good. But you know, really, what the aim of the AFP is at least to you know kind of lead to a publication. And I, I did publish the work I did in my AFP, but not until after I'd already started the ACF. Right. So, what was the work you did in your AFP? I, I did a project investigating the centralisation of acute stroke services in the northeast. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, centralization is something which is encountered in all areas of medicine at the minute, um, basically mm -hmm. by concentrating your resources in one area, you're enabled to provide a better standard of care, or at least that's the yeah. theory. And it, that transformation has happened in stroke services, first in London and the southeast, kind of in the early 2010s, and then shortly afterwards um, in Manchester, which I believe is your neck of the woods. Nearby, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then the Northeast was kind of the third region in the country to uh, to centralise our stroke services. So I did a, a retrospective time series analysis, looking at what the impact was on various outcomes for stroke. And that included things like, you know, length of time from stroke symptom onset to actually having a CT scan. So there was <laughs> some imaging involved in that, although it was, was not primarily an imaging project. 
we did we've done one episode with an interventional neuroradiologist on thrombectomy services. So would that have been related to would your project have been related to that in any way, like centralization of thrombectomy? Yeah, so so centralization of thrombectomy, that is the current hot topic. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so the work which we did was centralization of all stroke services. So the creation of a hyperacute stroke unit where any, okay. anybody with strokes goes straight to the hyperacute stroke unit, which means that if they need mm-hmm. thrombolizing, they can start thrombolysis straight away. Um, and as that happens, the healthcare trust, which was centralized in the Northeast that we were investigating, doesn't actually provide thrombectomy services. So patients who have strokes in Northumbria have to get transferred to Newcastle in order for thrombectomy to take place. So it's it's, it's complicated. But yeah. what we need, and I, you know, I think this is probably the outcome of the discussion that you had with the interventional neuroradiologist, is twenty four seven provision of thrombectomy. You know, so that it doesn't matter. You know, that it was the whole postcode lottery thing you guys were talking about. Yeah, yeah, that was the sticking point at the moment. Yeah, and it shouldn't. You know, that shouldn't be the case. Um, the UK is quite far behind, certainly the rest of Europe, and, and to be honest, probably a lot of the rest of the world when it comes to thrombectomy provision. Are you doing diagnostic or interventional neuroradiology? Yeah, very good question. So, um, for somebody who's interested in stroke and who's you know interested in uh, thrombectomy and stroke services. I actually am doing diagnostic uh, neuroradiology. So you're part of the problem, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I know. Um, I have a lot of respect for interventional neuroradiologists, but it's, it's a very stressful job, and the on-call rotors are quite demanding. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I think it's quite hard as well if you are interested in academia. You know, you want to have a career that enables you to spend a lot of your time not doing clinical work. And I think for, yeah. for very procedure heavy heavy specialties like INR, yeah. you know, if you're taking time out of theatre, I think that probably does have some knock on impact to your training, your clinical training. I definitely know you're you're doing your bit with your research already. Already joking. <laughs> yeah, I I try, I try. So, what's been your experience of research uh, in radiology so far? Yeah, so my experience of research in radiology. It kind of started, I guess, with my intercalated BSc project that was investigating this novel way of performing x-rays, kind of a new x-ray imaging apparatus, if you like. And and then, you know, I kind of went a few years where even though I knew that I wanted to do radiology for various reasons, I didn't actually do much by way of imaging research um, until I started the ACF. Um, and more recently, since starting my clinical radiology training, I've done some radiology research in the field of stroke, um, specifically investigating the impact that stroke has on neural tracts in the brain. Um, there's a, a technique called MRI tractography, which is where you can yeah. map out the directional diffusion of water in the brain and infer from that where the white matter tracts are going and what you know how big they are whether they've undergone any degeneration from any process such as stroke or other neurodegenerative disease. Um, so uh, essentially you can, you can map out these tracks and assess their integrity using the MRI tractography. Mm. Um, so that I'm involved in a study, uh, which we're halfway through at the minute, which is trying to see if we can predict what the outcome is going to be for stroke patients by ass- assessing the damage or how much the stroke overlaps with their corticospinal tract which is the main descending motor pathway and seeing if that the degree of damage to the corticospinal tract can help us predict how well those patients do kind of three months, six months down the line. So this 
MR tractography, is that down the line? Are they um, hoping for that to be used in clinical practice or is it sort of a, a research tool? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And it has neuroscientists and researchers have been using this technique for some years now. Um, but it's only mm-hmm. recently been filtering into clinical practice. It is actually used when you guys may have seen it being used if you've ever been to a neurosurgical MDT, uh, because they use it. Yeah, I've seen it in the um, malignancy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah, they, because when the neurosurgeons are planning on resecting a tumour, they like to try and avoid the really important nerve tracts. Um, so they can use it to help plan their surgical approach uh, to resection. So that's different to functional MRI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. It's different to functional MRI. Functional MRI, mm-hmm. you're looking at, you know, which cortices are active in different processes. You know, say mm-hmm. which bits of the brain light up when somebody's writing or walking or what yeah. have you. Whereas tractography is more structural rather than functional, in that you're looking at where do these nerves actually go, which bits of the brain are, you know, are they connecting up. They're all nice, colourful pictures to show the surgeons, though. Yes, they're very pretty pictures. <laughs> yeah, lots of nice colours. So when you were doing the academic clinical fellowship component of your training, how um, does that differ to conventional training, like the division of clinical work versus research? Yeah, so that's a nice, easy question to answer because the, mm-hmm. there's a time split. So essentially the way it works is the ACF, the NIHR, will fund to release you from clinical training for 25% of your time, you know, across years okay. one to three. And how you divide that, you know, you're given some flexibility. So you could either take it all in research blocks. So instead of doing a two-month or four-month clinical rotation in one year, you could do that whole thing as research. Or what's a bit more common is to mix and match. So take one day a week or something. So does that mean then that your, your overall training time is going to be longer? Yeah, so your training actually isn't extended by doing the ACF. Um, The idea is that hopefully your research projects have something to do with clinical radiology, and therefore the time that you spend working on them can help you achieve your clinical competencies in theory. Um, In in practice, it's not always that straightforward. And Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time that you spend doing research, you know, is time not spent doing clinical work. And over the course of three years, you know, you can find yourself starting to slip behind on the clinical aspect, which is expected Mm -hmm. if you're spending 25% less time than your colleagues actually do the clinical work. So you'll accept that your clinical expertise, your clinical work has suffered? I think you you can do things to try and mitigate that. You know, if you're organized, you know, you can get your portfolio in order earlier on than everybody else to make sure that you've met all of your Mm -hmm. competencies. You know, I, yeah, clinical supervisors, my experience, are often very understanding and, you know, they will go the extra mile to help make sure that I have achieved all of my clinical competencies. You know, so if yeah. there's a, a, an ultrasound list, which is normally on one day and that day is my academic yeah. day, they may go out of their way to try and house me into a list which is on a different day to where they normally have a trainee. Mm. So do you have to fulfill all of the workplace-based assessments that we have to do, or do you have to do 75%? No, you have to achieve the same number of workplace competencies, okay. all the same portfolio targets, the same exams and right. exam timelines as everybody else. So would you actually recommend an ACF to prospective trainees? Yeah, I, I would absolutely unequivocally recommend the ACF. Uh, it's, it's been a fantastic experience. 
And yes, whilst it's hard juggling the clinical with the academic training, um, the expectations of the ACF are not set in stone. So you, you whilst from the clinical side of things, you, you have to, every year you have an ARCP and you have to make sure that you've met those targets. The academic training tends to be a lot more flexible. And if you have, you know, a year where you've not been as productive as the other years, then the academic panels will, will tend to be, you know, fairly understanding of that. So it, you're not committing yourself to having to do mm. research and having to spend all your time doing this stuff. Some of the previous ACFs at my trust, you know, haven't been that interested in research um, or, you know, maybe the first year of doing the ACF has put them off the academic track. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's not been a problem for them. You know, they've, they've just been able to carry on with their clinical training and staying in the ACF and maybe using that their research time to do some audits or something like that rather than full-blown research. And that's right. been fine. So there's no sort of minimum requirement of what you need to achieve in your ACF. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's okay. it's not, there's no pass-fail. You know, you do what you do. Every year you do have a meeting with the academic panel who will ask you, what have you done? Um, but, you know, there's no minimum standard for you to meet. So just kind of looking at, at radiology in general as like a whole cohort of people, do you think that across the board, typically radiologists are involved in research enough? I, I would say absolutely not. Uh, academic radiology is um, very much underrepresented compared to other specialties you know surgery cardiology medicine you know there's huge numbers of academics in in those fields academic radiologists are rare as hen's teeth yeah um it's a big shame because you know we, we need radiologists to do research and um, what what are your thoughts on why that might be the case it's a tricky one you know because i would have thought a lot of the personality types that make somebody interested in radiology would also make them interested in research you know, yeah. not liking people, liking coffee, <laughs> you know, comfy chairs, that kind of thing. You know, it, it should. Um, but but in, in all seriousness, I think part of it is that in other specialties, there's the expectation that you do research, mm. especially in yeah. surgeons. You know, if you want to apply for surgery, if you want to be a competitive, you know, applicant for a surgical registrar post, that they will expect you to have publications. Yeah. Radiology, yeah. it's it's not it's not quite the same. Obviously, the extra points help. But there's not the expectation, you know, that you have loads of publications and stuff. It is a bit contradictory because radiology is fairly competitive to get into. And um, I have my my other thoughts are perhaps I think there might be a degree of complacency amongst trainees because of the workforce shortage because it's so bad that a lot of the CV building that you have to do in other specialties isn't necessarily required in radiology to get a job. So like stuff like research and even you can include fellowships in that. Um, it's not really standard. Um, yeah, when you compare to like cardiology or something where they want to get a, a job, job yeah. then as a consultant and they have to do an MD or a PhD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 you're exactly right. I think there probably is a degree of complacency in that, you know, we, we you're basically guaranteed to get a consultant job somewhere as long as you can get your outcome six or whatever at the end of yeah. your training. <laughs> um and even, you know, some uh, really competitive trusts for other specialties, you know, they struggle to recruit radiology consultants to. I was looking, there are, there are jobs advertised in Addenbrooke's, you know, for consultant radiologists that have been advertised for months. Yeah. And, you know, any other specialty, they, they would have just been easing up. But there's just not enough radiologists being trained to fill all the, all the posts. And we do get yeah. complacent. 
Do you think that perhaps another factor is that um, a lot of radiology research is perhaps too complex or at least perceived as being too complex? Because we use a lot of very, very advanced tech and there's a lot of physics. So maybe maybe that could put people off as well. You have a you know physics background, but, but a lot of trainees don't really. Maybe they didn't really do it beyond GCSE. I take your point. Um... But I, I would say that there's a lot of different areas in radiology which you can do research. And for me, you know, kind of being a bit of a physics mathsy geek, I'm drawn to the new technologies, new techniques side of things, you know, the MR physics and X-ray yeah. detectors and, and all of that stuff. Um, but actually, the majority of radiology research is, is not at all physics dependent. Uh, radiology is, is a clinical specialty and things are all about how is this going to make a difference for patients um, and I, I think there is an awful lot of scope to do radiology research, which is quite similar to what your clinical job is, which is just looking at scans, you know, and writing yeah. reports. And For someone who isn't that sort of experience in research, where do you start? Because I often feel like, yeah, I, I could do more research, I should do it, but I'm not the best at coming up with ideas on my own. So um, sometimes it can be just difficult to know where to even start. Yeah, so I, I think this is where having a strong uh, senior support is mm-hmm. is really helpful. And I think you probably will find actually most places in the country, if you, if you email your consultants and say, oh, you know, I'm interested in research, that they will probably know somebody who's who's doing research in your field, you know, either locally or, you know, maybe somebody in a, in a different trust or another region, you know, who's doing research in what you're interested in. So I would say speak to your seniors and, and ask for help. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure they'll be able to, to find you somebody who, who can sort you out. So you gave us a little teaser earlier on when you said that you were planning on doing a PhD, was it? So can you tell us about those? Plans? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I'm very keen to, to go down the PhD route. So I, something I probably should have said earlier on, I, I've basically followed the integrated academic training pathway, right? It's the NIHR um you know, a decade or two ago, had to completely overhaul clinical academic training because they were struggling to find academic clinicians from all specialties, not just radiology. And as part of making life simpler, they came up with this kind of career pathway progression scheme, um, which consists of various different jobs at different levels. And if they integrated academic training pathway or IAT starts with the BSc and then goes on to the AFP and then on to the ACF. Right. And the next rung of the ladder after the ACF is normally the PhD. Um, part of the reason for that is that if you want to do, say, a, a consultant academic job where you're employed by a university and doing maybe 50% of your time doing research, all those jobs are postdoctoral jobs. Right. So, you, you know, you would struggle to spend 50% of your time doing research. Uh, you would struggle to find a job that would let you to do that unless you had a PhD. Right, okay. um, so yeah, I'm, because I do want to spend 50% of my time doing research, it's really important for me to have a PhD. Um, that's not the only driver for me wanting to do it. You know, also it would be great to develop my research skills and, you know, my analytical skills mm. uh, and to, you know, every uh, opportunity that you have to apply for funding and, you know, going through that process, I think makes you a better researcher. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons why uh, I would like to do a PhD. So have you have you applied for funding for research that you've done so far? So I was a co-applicant on a grant, which uh, we've just found out last week was successful. Uh, and that was my first experience, really, of actually applying for funding to do research. 
the synonyms study that I talked about earlier with the tractography and stroke, that project was already funded before I got involved as a co-investigator. How arduous is the funding application process? It's it's very arduous. Yeah, it's it's the the whole process is is a bit of a nightmare to be honest. There's a, a lot of writing. You have to write pages and pages. You have to have meetings with so many different people. Uh-huh. You know, people in the university that from the clinical academic office and people involved in you know research costing and funding, research methodologists and statisticians and you know I. I tried applying for a PhD at the end of last year, and that application I worked out, I, I needed to speak to 40 different people wow. to, in order to, to get my application together. And it was like just pages and pages, tens of pages long, this application. So, so yeah, very long. <laughs> so you could, do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you could do all that and then still get turned down for funding. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the research funding is very competitive, right. um, especially for clinical research funding. And part of that reason is if you do the clinical PhD rather than the scientific PhD, you will often get funding that salary matches your clinical job. Okay. Um, most scientific PhDs, you know, I know it's a bit crass to talk about money, but you know, if you have a house and a mortgage, Absolutely. you do actually need to think about these things. And you know, most science PhDs would probably be paying twenty thousand pounds a year, mm-hmm. uh, which would be, I, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that would be a big drop for for most radiology trainees. Yeah, um, you're not getting out of bed for that. Much. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd have to really, really love research. <laughs> but um, so the, the the clinical PhDs are always competitive um, because there's very few of them because they're so expensive. Okay. And you said the ultimate aim is for you to get an academic consultant post where you're partly employed by a university. And so how um, prevalent are those jobs? Um, Yeah, so there's not loads. Uh, There are more in some parts of the country than others. So it's a lot easier to to get that kind of, I say a lot easier. What I mean is there are many more people doing those kind of jobs Mm -hmm. at the biggest academic centres. Yeah. So London, Oxbridge you know, there'll be quite a lot of consultants who are actually university academics who are honorary consultants. Okay. Right. You know, if you're out in the out in the sticks, you know, me up in the northeast, um, there aren't very many consultants who are actually academics. But obviously you've been in the Northeast for a while. Presumably you're building up relationships with the university. Could you sort of have a post made for you? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's quite complicated. The you know the bidding processes mm. for um, kind of the creation of clinical academic jobs, um, but I, I do think it has helped being in the region for a very long time and getting to know the professors you know who who do research and imaging research and the people who are you know high up in the university who can maybe make these things happen. Yeah. Um. I I would say that yeah, definitely getting your name out there and mm. you know making yourself known to the people who make those decisions will increase the chance of there being a job there when you're you're applying for jobs. So what what has been the highlight of your academic career so far? The highlight of my academic career so far um, has probably been the stroke centralisation project that I talked about a little bit earlier on. Um, Getting that paper, not not only did it feel great because it was the first full-length paper that I had published, but it's actually been cited by the Stroke Association in their kind of impact documents, uh, you know, describing what they think about centralization. 
and it's also been cited by NHS England and NHS Improvement oh, wow. in, in documents relating to the reorganisation of stroke services elsewhere in the country. I think that's that's what you know clinical academia is all about. It's about yes having a good time doing the project and finding it really interesting Mm -hmm. but then actually getting to see what the impact is you know and and knowing that maybe you have actually been able to change something and improve care for patients it's like it's like you're an influencer (laughs) (laughs) yeah but a lot less glamorous nobody's sending me freebies for this are you doing any research with ai or involved in any ai research at the moment so at the minute, I'm not. Um, it is something which I find interesting. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people, I think, doing research in AI at the moment. I, I would say that actually probably the majority of radiology research that's happening, or, you know, that's a very hot topic at the minute. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's something to be said, you know, for doing research that's not AI-centered, mm-hmm. because there are plenty of people who, who are doing research that's very AI-heavy. Yeah, that was kind of the leading question, because I was going to say, do you think there's an overemphasis on AI research in the radiology community? Yeah, I mean, I think there is, but I can I can see why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the, it brings the promise of being able to, you know, deliver good services and improve patient mm-hmm. care, you know, in a very exciting way. Um, and I can absolutely see why, you know, people who are funding research would give funding to people who are proposing, you know, clinical implementations for AI. I think that something that um, you kind of hear about is that there's a lot of emphasis on research into tech, whether that's hardware or you know software like AI, um, but there's perhaps not as much research into the benefit of that technology for patients. Yeah, so that's accurate. Absolutely, that's very accurate. You should be always thinking, what is the clinical application of this technology, right from you know the conception of the technology. It was one th- one of the things I noticed doing my BSc uh, was that there are these physicists who have these really amazing ideas and, you know, they're working on these really interesting concepts and they don't really have any idea what the clinical applications might be. You know, they're just investigating yeah. it from a technology perspective. Um, and I think that, you know, we'd be able to really speed up integration of new technologies into clinical practice if people were thinking, how is this going to be clinically useful? right from the beginning. I suppose that's why you need more radiologists to be involved in the research because they will have their eye on the clinical side of things rather than just research for the sake of it or over-focus on the technical aspect. Yeah, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. We spent half an hour and I, that, that sentence is just perfectly <laughs> exactly my feelings. It's organic. Um, <laughs> you're doing that. Um, so, I mean, we're obviously in the middle of a pandemic. Um, Liverpool is right at the heart of it. I think I currently work in the trust with the most COVID patients in the country, which is an unenviable title. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, our training's been quite disrupted and we're all looking at CCT extensions at this rate. Um, but how has your research been affected by COVID? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I, I'm really sorry to hear about everything that's going on. You know, I, yeah, it, it must be really hard. I know the strain that it's put clinical services under all across the country, but obviously some parts of the country have been harder hit than others, and Liverpool does seem to have been particularly hammered uh, at the minute. Much appreciated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it has been a nightmare from the research perspective. So this the, the synonym study with the stroke tractography, we ha- had to suspend the study for a number of months this year 
Um, not only that, but we'd recruited patients and done our index scans you know, kind of between January and March and should have been following up those patients, you know, in March, April, May. And mm. um, we've had to lose those patients to follow up because, um, oh. it, you know, there's no way that we could have had yeah. the follow-up meetings to assess how their strength is recovered. And that's really frustrating because you it's hard recruiting patients to studies. It's really hard. Mm. And, you know, every patient you recruit, you know, it's it's a great achievement. And then to just have three of them lost, um, it, was, it was really frustrating. Mm. And, you know, now things have, research has started back up again, but it, it seems like with the second wave coming, you know, we're probably looking at having to suspend the study again. So what will you do? Will you just suspend it or are you determined to, at some point, complete the project, complete the study? Yeah, I think we'd like to complete it. Obviously, we want to complete it. But there's timelines on the research funding that you have. Oh, and okay. and what funders are understanding, you know, if the, fact the pandemic has delayed everything, they can't just keep extending your funding indefinitely. You know, they will reach a point where they'll say you'll just have to close the study with however many patients you've got. Right. Okay, well, fingers crossed for you that um, you can avoid that happening and, and get it done. More collateral damage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, okay, we've spoken a lot about ACF, but we're just going to shift the focus onto the application process itself um, yeah. because we know some of our listeners will be in the process of applying for it, so we want to give them a bit of an advantage if we can. Um, and so can you tell us a bit about the application process and how it's different from conventional recruitment? Yeah, so the, the ACF application is a bit more like what traditional medical applications used to be before it became such an anonymous points-based system. Yeah. Um, in that, there are still white space questions, you know, so you put together uh, an application with an application form and you have to write paragraphs about things where people will actually read a paragraph rather yeah. than just counting up the number of publications and degrees and stuff mm -hmm. you've had. Um, so, so it differs uh, it, from that perspective. There's also an interview uh, for the ACF, which is done locally. So at ACFs, you, you decide exactly which programs, which schools you want to apply for, and you only apply to those training programs. So, you know, I applied to Northern, which is where I am now, and I also applied to Sheffield, and I didn't apply to any other ACFs because there was nowhere else I wanted to go. Really. Um, okay. The applications run in tandem with your clinical radiology applications, and you, you can't just apply to the ACF. You also have to apply to clinical training at the same time, and you have to go to national clinical radiology interviews in London or you know, Zoom or however they're doing them now, and um, score highly enough to be mm -hmm. appointable somewhere, but you don't have to score highly enough to get into the deanery that you've applied to the ACF for, as long as, right. so all, all you need is to be appointable, but you yeah. don't need to score highly enough to rank. Right. Provided that you get an offer for the ACF from the local deanery that you've applied yeah. to. So you could not score highly enough to get a place on the clinical radiology in that deanery, but you could get the academic post. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, so going back to the white space questions, how how many questions are there? You may not remember exactly what the questions are, but is it quite a long application form? It, it's, it's not that long, to be honest. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a few pages. There were probably 10 questions or, you know, something, mm -hmm. something along those lines. Um stuff like why do you want to pursue a career in academic medicine you know what's your research experience to date 
Yeah. Uh, and and so I'm sure there was a question about just like what are your hobbies, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Mm. Did you get any sort of help or tips on how to complete it, or how did you go about it? So I'd say the best thing that helped me with the ACF application was having applied for an AFP and having done the AFP application, okay. especially within the same deanery, because um, there were a lot of similarities between the AFP and the ACF application. Very similar questions. Okay. So you apply in tandem to the, the clinical radiology. Um, is the timeline sort of the same? So you you know, do you apply around October, November time and interview within the spring? Yeah, the, 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 the timeline's similar. I think it, it was probably slightly earlier by maybe a month or two, but uh, um, the dates do change from year to year. And, it, mm. it, you know, anybody who's looking into this should, as soon as they think they might want to apply for an ACF, they should start looking at the national dates for recruitment. How competitive is ACF? Uh, again, it depends where you are, and, and things okay. have changed a little bit as well. So when I applied to the ACF, they were actually offering them only uh, in a specialty-specific manner. So I there were only radiologists who were applying for the same ACF post as I was. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas the way it's gone now, certainly in Northern, and I think probably in a lot of other deaneries, is they mix specialties. So you might be competing against academic psychiatrists or academic GPs or academic ophthalmologists for one ACF right. post. So they've become, I think, a lot more competitive than they were when I applied. Uh, so it's just ACF is kind of considered its own thing and then it becomes whatever specialty the applicant wants it to be. Well, it's it's more the funding and commissioning process for ACFs are, are, are quite complicated. Right. It's more that, you know, maybe a deanery will have X number of ACF posts to allocate and then decisions are made about what specialties they want to allocate them to. Okay. And when I applied, wow. we had some ring fenced specifically for radiology and that ring fencing has been lost, I expect, because the overall number of ACF posts probably isn't as, as high as it was when I applied. Right. So um, we have just a, a few quick fire specific questions that some of our prospective ACF applicants ask us that you may be able to help answer for them. Uh, so um, what happens if you apply for ACF ST1, but you don't get it? Does that mean that your dreams of becoming a big dog academic are completely shattered? Or do you actually have other opportunities down the line to get onto an ACF programme? Yeah, so there's two answers to that. Uh, the first answer is yes, you, you can absolutely apply. Some schools will advertise ACF ST2 posts or ACF ST3 posts that you can apply for after you've already started your clinical radiology training. And you can apply okay. you know, to another deanery to do those. Okay. You know, if there's an ACF in a given deanery, that is normally an extra numeracy position. Um, so they will normally be able to accommodate somebody coming in from another mm. school or, or what have you. Um, the second point to that question is that even if you don't get onto an ACF at all, you can still do research and get involved in research. And you could even still apply for a PhD fellowship, even if you hadn't done the ACF. Okay. And um, I think you answered this one a little bit earlier, partially, but if you start ACF and then you decide down the line that you're just not really feeling it, um, it's the, all these p-values and area under the curve, it's not really doing it for you anymore. Um, can, you, can, can, you, can you switch to conventional clinical radiology training or you have to see out your academic, your ACF, but you can do non-research stuff during that time? 
yeah, you can swap to just clinical at any time if you wanted. Um, but I personally, I, I don't think that that would be a sensible thing to do because, as I said, there's no the ACF doesn't really have expectations. Obviously, people funding them hope that you'll go on to publish papers and get PhD fellowships and stuff. But if you decide it's not for you and that's not what you want to do, then you're not really going to get penalised for that. Um, so you could do, but I don't think it would be beneficial to swap from doing academic to pure clinical training. Right. So, so what advice would you give to junior doctors or medical students to help them prepare for the ACF or AFP application? Start early is the number one piece of advice I would give you. It takes months to prepare applications for these things. Uh, and you really need to be, you know, as soon as you have the thought in your head, oh, I might want to apply for an AFP, I might want to apply for an ACF, then you need to be starting researching into how you can go about doing that. So yeah, number one, start early. Number two, speak to people. Speak to people who are already doing those jobs, people who have done the AFP, people who have done the ACF. You know, hopefully you guys will be able to put my contact details out and I'm very happy to answer emails from anybody who, who thinks that this might be something which they're interested in. That'd be great. great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's great, Matt. Thank you for sharing your experiences with us and the listeners. Hopefully this episode will help to bring academia and research a bit more into the forefront of people's minds because joking aside, I think we do all need to be a bit more involved in it, as we said, so that we can influence changes and new developments in a way that works for us rather than having non-radiologists and big companies driving all the changes. Yeah, absolutely. I hope that we've been able to post academic radiology in a positive light. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. No, thank you for joining us. So thanks for listening, guys. Uh, we'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can catch all of our previous episodes on all the major podcast platforms and also at anchor.fm forward slash radcast. And for more updates in the meantime, uh, you can check out our social media channels. So the eagle-eyed ones amongst you will have noticed that we've done a bit of rebranding behind the scenes. So we are now at Radcast Academy on Twitter and the same on Instagram as well. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye.